started. Well, hello everyone. Today is Sunday, July 18th in 2021, and this is Get Smarter and Make Stuff, the podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Craig Andera, and today I'm really happy to welcome somebody who uh, I think is going to be a great guest, uh, someone who enjoys making things and enjoys talking about making things, and we're going to have a, a fun time talking to him about his uh, activities in this space. Um, I'm referring to my guest today and someone I've known, I'll add, for 40 years, probably 40 years. Yeah, Peter Bettenberg. Welcome to the show, Peter. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we've been friends for a really long time, and you're like a super interesting guy in a lot of ways, um, not least of which is um, you have a, a rather interesting uh, hobby. And I, I think we'll talk about other stuff too, but I definitely want to talk about this one because it, it's right in the vein of the show, um, which is that you have spent a bunch of time doing blacksmithing, which I think is super interesting. Um, and, uh, you know, so as is usually the case with the show, like we're interested in talking about learning. We're interested in talking about making and things that you've made or learned or would like to make or learn. Uh, and we can start anywhere. I did want to mention that one up front because I think it is super cool. Uh, and so we can talk about that first if you like, but uh, I'll just throw it to you, man. What's, uh, what have you been making? What have you been learning? What's your experience making and learning been like? I mean, what's, what's going on with you in those departments? Well, um, I, I think you'd say that, uh, I was a real late bloomer in that regard because, um, I, growing up, I was always kind of on the periphery of projects that were going on around me. Um, my grandfather was a traditional blacksmith. Uh, he had, uh, uh, had a shop in Holland, uh, the Netherlands and had set up a shop here in America when, when, uh, he, uh, he emigrated and my really? other, yeah. I, I mean, that must've been, uh, I would imagine in the, you know, thirties and forties, something like that. Yes. Uh, up until, uh, he came over, I want to say it was 55. Oh, wow. And so he was a blacksmith. Oh, but okay. You, I, you were already talking about this, and I jumped in. I'm, this is super interesting. Please continue. <laughs> no, no. Uh, cl clearly, you you want to know a little more about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, he uh, uh, he had been like a multi generational blacksmith in, in the family. So his dad was a blacksmith. His older brother was a blacksmith. I want to say that like his grandfather and his grandfather, grandfather's grandfather. You know, all blacksmiths. Hmm. Uh, that whole kind of like feudal family tradition type thing. And, um, uh, but, uh, you know, even though they were, they were in, you know, what we consider like first world, right. Mm -hmm. It was a rural part of, of the Netherlands and, uh, they were still doing like wagon wheels and sharpening plowshares and doing door hinges, very traditional stuff, you know, rather unchanged all the way from the middle ages. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, when world war two hit, uh, my grandfather kind of saw the writing on the wall. He was introduced to new technology. Um, he was commissioned, I, I want to say by the Canadian army that, that liberated them, uh, to chop up all the, all the debris, all the German tanks that were left behind. Uh, he was given like an oxyacetylene torch and, you know, given a few bucks and said, here, chop everything up. You can keep the metal. Mm. and uh but at the same time he was being called on to do less blacksmithing and more like construction work he was doing more electrical work he was doing more plumbing work because he was kind of the town handyman right 
Yeah, I, I mean, it strikes me that blacksmiths traditionally would have been the technology nerds of the of of rural life, right? Like the people that were likely to be interested in machinery and tooling and and others. You know, we'll call it advancement. We could debate about that term, I guess. But it <laughs> seems like that's where the that's where that stuff would sort of naturally land. They would be the the modern, the, or rather. The, mo- the modern analog to them would be the computer nerd who's over in the corner installing the latest version of Linux. Right. And, uh, you know, almost no challenge uh, couldn't be overcome. You know, mm-hmm. it was like, well, I've never done that before, so let me try it. And, right, right. You know, what's the worst that's going to happen? I have to do it again. I might learn something. Right. It's a learning yep. process. Yep, yep. Uh, but he saw the writing on the wall. He was mm-hmm. like, you know, there's no future for this. Uh, my older brother is going to be the town blacksmith. The town over has a blacksmith. There's nowhere for me to go and make a living doing this old stuff. So he kind of immersed himself into uh, uh, electricity and uh, got his license and uh, uh, became the town electrician. And uh, But when he came to America, he brought his anvil and a hammer and a leg vise with him and set up a little blacksmith shop. Uh, in his house in Buffalo, Minnesota. Fascinating. And so there was work still to be done even then in that place, at least for for somebody. And I assume this is, you know, we're talking about like a, a charcoal forge and, and hammers and anvils and, and tools that somebody from, you know, 1650 would have recognized. For the most part, yes. Um, although things did change as he as he got older. And uh, uh, obviously, the the ability to to get technology, you know, improved through like the '60s, '70s, and '80s. You know, he got he got welding equipment uh, uh, that was that was decent. Um, he he created uh, uh, you know portable sawmills for himself out of scrap metal, and um, you know everything became motorized, uh, more advanced, and yet he was still making things that were incredibly traditional. Uh, he was making plant stands, uh, candle holders, uh, all sorts of decorative stuff for the house, uh, for my mom, for all of her siblings, uh, you know, extended family members in the community. Uh, but it was very much a hobby and not a living. So this obviously is how you got exposure to this. <laughs> you know, I was exposed to it and I grew up surrounded by all these things my grandfather had made. Um, but by the time I was in high school, he was already entering his 80s. Mm. And so his presence in the shop was diminishing. And uh, as a high schooler, you know, what was I asking him to make? Swords. <laughs> axes right you know dungeons and dragons type oh, yeah. stuff right let's make some armor and um right my so grand pe- so my- just for real quick sorry for the listeners <laughs> P- peter and i have probably spent oh i don't know a collective you know 20 years playing dungeons and dragons and various other fantasy games together so this is a big big part of our history together Right. And, yeah. and has been, you know, since day one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, my grandfather had no interest in any of that. Um, and what I didn't fully appreciate at the time was he had been part of the Dutch resistance in world war two. Mm. He had seen enough violence. Um, and he had no interest in making any weapons of violence. Mm. 
uh, which, you know, now I totally get, but at the time was really disappointed by. Mm-hmm. Um, but he died when, uh, when I was, I think, sophomore or, or junior in college. And um, I, I was really kind of dialed out from, from all that stuff uh, by that age. Um, but uh, unbeknownst to me, my dad uh, rescued most of my grandfather's shop, uh, even though it wasn't, my, my dad wasn't, you know, uh, uh, the, the son of this man, but son-in-law, mm-hmm. but he rescued the shop, put it into storage, and there it sat for a number of years. Um, until a number of years later, I got this email that cascaded through all sorts of friends to finally find its way to me. And it was, it was a guy, uh, down on a farm, uh, who was having an open forge weekend. And basically everybody is invited. Anybody's invited to come on down and try your hand at blacksmithing. Uh, or woodwork, or whatever, right? You have a broken tool, you have something broken in your household, bring it down, we'll try to fix it. And I was like, man, I don't know this guy, I don't know where this is, I have no real experience, but I'm interested, I'm in. So, you got in my car, drove down to the middle of nowhere, you know, it was like, it it could have been the, the, the start of a horror film. (laughs) <laughs> right you know the 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 college kid alone on a, on a farm in the middle of nowhere I, I i mean i i gotta say like uh I, I don't mean any any disrespect this is a little uncharacteristic for you uh it it, it is it it certainly was at the time mm-hmm. um i i have tended to be a bit of a stick in the mud i wouldn't have put it that <laughs> way I, I, you were definitely a deliberate person i think that might be a, a way i would put it but so uh, let's dig down on this a little bit then like what it, it, it was just some snap decision or it was something that had been building or like how did you come to decide that this was a thing you wanted to do because it sounds like i mean based on the way you're uh framing it it seems like a rather uh pivotal moment for you so what what got you to, to make the decision uh, part of it was that uh, uh, the buddy who had forwarded this email to me was going to go as well. I see. And it was like, well, you know, good good chance to spend some time with a friend and, uh, you know, new experience. And yet something that's kind of a family inheritance, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's something I should at least check out more thoroughly because... It's 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 almost an opportunity that I failed to pursue originally, or or perhaps you know something that was stolen away from me by the loss of my grandfather. Mm-hmm. And so let's check it out. Let's let's really dive into this. Do, do you mind if I ask how old you were when this happened? Um, the the blacksmithing. Yeah this this uh, event you went to. Yep. Oh, this was. I was already in my thirties. Okay. So the reason I ask is, I mean, everybody's different. Age is no predictor of somebody's uh, maturity, development, whatever, whatever. But I, I, f- I feel like um, it's. It seems to me. Correct me if I'm wrong. I guess uh, it seems to me like that. F- that connection to your family is something that tends to come a little bit later. At least it did for me. You know that that notion of wanting to know more about my my family's history and so forth. It, it's the sort of thing that I saw my father get more into later in, uh, in his life. He's been, you know, continue to continues to be interested in genealogy. He's actually mm-hmm. shared some of that stuff with me with all the tools that are available now. And, um, 
And it's interesting to me now in a way that it would not have been when I was, say, 20. So I'm just curious to see if it was... That's a good point, because in my 30s, I too did become interested in genealogy. I uh, did a lot of work on that myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, it just it felt like the right thing to do. Okay. And it felt like something I really had to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, my buddy bails out on me the day before. <laughs> but you still went. I still went. Awesome. Okay. And uh, it was uh, it was a beautiful event. It felt it felt like I could do no wrong that weekend. And I wish every day blacksmithing felt like I could do no wrong. <laughs> um, <laughs> call it beginner's luck. Call it, uh, you know, grandpa looking down on me, whatever. But uh, I enjoyed it. I did so much right those first couple of days. And I was bitten by the bug. Isn't there a lot? I, there's, I feel like there's a lot to be said for early success. You know, like, uh, as one example, uh, I've been into wood turning. I'm into a million things, but wood turning is one. And walking up to a lathe, you can make a really simple object um, successfully your first time up. And I, I feel like what you're talking about is uh, is that you had some of that. You had some of that early kind of payoff that <laughs> that then it was like, oh, wow, there might be more of that. You know, let me let me actually invest and see if if I can do that again. Well, and credit has to go to uh, the host, uh, a friend of mine, Martin Ponch, who uh, has been a, a metal worker for many years. He had such an inviting and stress-free environment, right? I mean, you're dealing with hot metal. You're, you're dealing with, you know, heavy equipment at times. Um, but you always felt safe. You always felt like you had a sounding board. And I remember for the first couple of hours, I was I was just looking at all the books and just kind of paralyzed by what should I do, what mm-hmm. what can I do? Mm-hmm. Uh, that uh, that more deliberate nature took over, right? It's like I need a plan. And he was like, you know, here's a piece of metal, just go stick it in the fire. <laughs> and you know, here's a hammer, and uh, you know, just just mess around with it. Just start bending it and see what happens. And uh, that was the start. It was like, oh, I can do this. And if I hit it here, I can do this. And oh, wow, but I want to do this. So how do I, how do I make that happen? And um, it was, it was just a wonderful thing. Hmm. So you said metalworking, which is an interesting term to me that I, so one of the things for me is over the last um, few years, I've really branched out. I would say previously, my a lot of my making was focused on woodworking, and now I've been interested in in more and more materials. Three D printing might have been my first sort of non woodworking making, mm-hmm. adding plastic, and then I kind of looked at that and said, "Well, this is interesting." You know, adding a material has really increased my capabilities to do certain things. So now, what are other materials techniques? And so I've been interested in. in I think what it may be more properly called machining. I have a metal lathe. I have a mill. Um, I've, I've started to learn to weld a little bit. Um, is there a distinction between metalworking and machining? Because I like I will say metalworking because I'm working with metal. But then, but I'm like, well, is that more? And I'm using air quotes here. But of course, it's an audio <laughs> podcast, uh, right? Is it more properly metalworking if you're, you know, uh, manipulating metal at, like at a forge or whatever? Do you can? Is that something you? I don't know. What are the right words, if there are right words? Well, um, 
jumping ahead to to, to answer that question, jumping ahead a few years, mm-hmm. uh, I found myself uh, in a group here in the Twin Cities called the Guild of Metalsmiths, mm-hmm. and this is a nonprofit that uh, promotes all forms of metal working. Okay. And so we have members in the guild who are traditional blacksmiths. We have jewelers. We have professional welders. We have clockmakers. You name it. Anybody who works with metal is welcome and can find a home in this group. And because of that, I tend to use the word metalworking uh, as a catch-all. Okay. Because if you, you know, certain certain times, if you say, well, we're going to be doing blacksmithing, well, technically that might not be correct, um, you know, based on the nuances of the projects, or it might not, not attract people with other interests. So we just kind of use that blanket term of metalworking, uh, regardless of what we're doing. Okay. Um, so, yes, there is... There is a distinction, you know, machining, millwork, all of that is definitely a, a subcategory of metalworking, okay. just as is, uh, you know, uh, iron pours or bronze pours, uh, traditional metalworking, welding. It's all under that metalworking umbrella. Got it. Cool. Well, that's great because that's what I'm interested in is the everything thing. <laughs> sure. <laughs> awesome. So you were talking about this event and, you know, um, how you it started to really pull you in. So I, I, I'm, I, I'd love you to pick back up on the story. It's just, it's well, I mean, I, I could, I could go on with, you know, every step along the way, mm-hmm. but, uh, uh, basically I, I ran home, uh, to, to my folks, uh, uh, after this event was over and, and was, you know, just, just beaming, right. Just so happy that, <laughs> that I got this experience. And, um, and my dad was like, well, I guess it's time to set up the old shop again. And I went, oh, what shop? <laughs> and he says, well, I saved your grandfather's shop after he died. And so sure enough, we still had, you know, grandpa's anvil. We had his collection of hammers and tongs. We had his uh, uh, heavy-duty leg vice, uh, which for those not in the know is different than, say, a, a, a tabletop vice in that it has a metal leg that goes all the way down to the floor to transfer the force so that the force is not going into the tabletop or the desk, but is going into the ground. Um, and so I, I had all these, all these tools that not only gave me a leg up, but were kind of the, the family inheritance as it were. Mm -hmm. And so set up a shop, started, uh, started messing around, uh, joined the guild of metalsmiths. Like I said, and now, all these years later, I'm on the board of directors for the Guild of Metalsmiths, and I'm in charge of our quarterly uh, prestige magazine every every four months, three months. That's awesome. So, and I want to talk more about that um, and uh, and dig into you know some of the some of the things you've done and, and more about the guild. Sure. I, I am curious though. Um, was this your first? foray into making like i mean or you know what i mean like was the very had you done any woodworking or any pottery or any anything at all that you would consider to be in the same vein or was this a first for you um well i i had definitely tinkered um 
But tinkering is the right word. I mean, I was the sort of kid growing up who would take apart the the broken down vacuum cleaner. Um, I was the kid who, you know, the drill stopped working. Oh, I'd take it apart just to see what was going on inside. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't about fixing it. It was more just about discovery. Um, my other grandfather, uh, my father's father, was uh, was a, a big tinkerer as well and an old car enthusiast. Mm. And so growing up, there were a lot of times where, uh, you know, the, the three generations of us would be uh, shaping a little piece of sheet metal to rebuild a, a rusted out, you know, wheel well or, or bottom of, a, of an antique car door. Um, but of course, I was always the junior, junior member. <laughs> um, you know, you get uh, uh, three guys in the Bettenberg family with strong opinions and, and two of them are going to lose. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, fond memories of having these tools around and, and these little projects. Um, but it was, it was probably, it was probably around 1998 or so that the first metalworking possibilities came in. Um, my dad had gotten a, a sword blade out of, I think Italy or Spain back in the eighties and it was like a uh, like a build your own sword kit or something, right? It it had the blade, it had a, a cross guard, it had a a, a a pommel, but you had to put it together. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, he was unhappy with certain aspects of it. He never never finished it off. And so I took all these pieces uh, to a to a local shop, uh, Arms and Armor in Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I just, I wander in there thinking they're going to have a storefront. No, they were actually a sword factory. And so, you know, I'm wandering in with this five foot long Scottish Claymore blade, probably looking like a crazy Rasputin-like character. <laughs> and uh, to their credit, they were, you know, very, very welcoming and showed me around and politely declined uh, my invitation to help finish off this sword blade. And it was like, well... If they're not going to help me, and I don't have any other resources at this point, I didn't know about the Guild of Metalsmiths, and and my grandfather wasn't interested in making swords or, or anything related to weapons. It's like, well, I'm either going to have to learn how to do it myself, or I'm just going to have to buy a complete sword. Mm-hmm. And this is before you had uh, discovered blacksmithing. Yes, this was okay. this was near near a decade before I had discovered okay. blacksmithing. But you know, it was just another another way that I was kind of I was skirting this community. I was on the periphery um, of of this sword making community. I was on the periphery of like the antique car restoration community. I was on the the outskirts of the blacksmithing community. And it really wasn't going to take much to to nudge me into it. Mm-hmm. It was just the right opportunity. Um, and what hit first was was uh, uh, starting to to buy and collect swords based on my inability to complete my my father's sword kit. Mm-hmm. So that's when I started dropping money on uh, Japanese style swords and. 
some some fairly high end swords that uh, you know are I I love my collection and respect the hell out of them. Now I'm at a point though where I can start doing some of that myself. Right. Yeah. And actually, so I think this is something I don't want to jump ahead too far because I know there's some other stuff that we want to talk about, but there is already, I think, developing um, a theme, which I wonder if you could comment on, which is the notion of, of history, right? Like, so uh, blacksmithing in, in and of itself is, although obviously there are aspects of it that can be done uh, with very modern equipment and tooling and, and uh, metalworking, certainly, you know, you can have CNC mills, which are extremely 21st century. Um, but, you know, you have these old swords, you have this family history, like to what extent is all this stuff for you about, and then, you know, we could talk about even Dungeons and Dragons, you know, the, the, the fantasy uh, genres are rooted in um, a certain notion of, of medieval, of medieval life. It's fictionalized, obviously, but there's nothing wrong with that. Um, so it's kind of all these things to me sort of strike me as, some some a connection with a with a with a prior time. I mean, I haven't heard you yet, for instance, talk at all about. Um, I mentioned CNC. That would be an example of metalworking mm-hmm. that is very very modern. Um, it's, uh, how much of what I'm saying is nonsense, and how much of it applies? <laughs> well, no, uh, you know, you, you touched on it earlier about blacksmiths kind of being, you know, the 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 innovators and the industrialists sure. of, of, uh, ancient times technologists, technologists. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean that, that carries through even in, in our fiction, you know, like, like Dungeons and Dragons, like you said, you know, you want to get powered up before fighting the dragon, you go to the blacksmith. Right. Yeah. Right. He makes you a special spear that, you know, helps you on your quest and uh you know video games and it, it it's an integral part of our kind of folklore um and and that's that for me is is a beautiful thing and i feel i uh, obviously i i don't measure up to to a lot of the amazing uh blacksmiths and metal workers that are out there uh, compared to them i'm i'm still a, a newbie but um i i feel at least a little bit like i'm part of that legacy mm-hmm. um which you know maybe that's my vanity talking <laughs> I, I don't think so oh it's interesting to hear you say that i mean first of all um a lot of the people that i've had on who are you know like myself this is not their day job right sure um, but that's still something that they have invested a substantial portion of their spare time into. You know, they may have other obligations, family or whatever. But like when they're not doing anything else, they're do- they're making something or they're they're mm-hmm. learning a thing or they're thinking about it. I mean, that's certainly true for me. Um, and yet, I, I hear that a lot. That oh, I'm oh, I'm just a beginner, or this is just a hobby, or I'm not very good at this. Um, and it's it's interesting to me. I mean, I do it too, right? It's I'm not immune. Um, it's probably just, there's probably not a whole lot to comment on there. I think it's just human nature to, when you're into something, you're, how did I hear it put once by, um, Ira Glass, right? Uh, the, uh, This American Life host. Sure. Really, really, really good. Uh, uh, I guess it's a show, but also a podcast. He said, 
when you're really into something, your taste develops ahead of your skill, right? Mm. So, so like I, I can look at the things that I make and go, well, these have these flaws, right? Because my taste is good enough. But, you know, it's the old thing, right, where you make a thing and you show it to your friends, your, your coworkers, your spouse, whatever, and they're like, oh, that's right. great. And then you go, oh, yeah, but look right here where, where this part <laughs> is too thick. And under here, I had to glue together a mistake. And they're like, you know, I didn't see that. In fact, I still don't see it, right? Right. Um, because your taste runs ahead of your, uh, I think, sometimes of your of your skill. That's a good thing, right? You want to kind of know where you're going. But I think it has this perverse knock-on effect of all of us go, well, this could be better. Uh, we're our own worst critics. Yeah, we're our own worst critics, exactly. Hopefully, anyway. I mean, I would like to think that you're not running into people who are like, your work is shit, Peter. It's, <laughs> it's garbage. You should give this up. You know, right? I Hopefully that you're only hearing that kind of thing from yourself. And and hopefully even then we can all kind of um, remember to try to step back and go, no, this is for fun. And I actually am improving and enjoying it and whatnot. Anyway. Well, no, and, and, and that's one thing in the in the traditional blacksmith community uh, that is that is always being reinforced is that uh, perfection is the enemy of good enough, mm-hmm. and people are not paying you for uh, uh, museum quality, you know, absolutely perfectly machined item. They're paying you for something handcrafted. Yeah, that's with really with all the little mistakes and dings and you know, trademark uh, of authentic handmade production. Otherwise they'd be going to Ikea, right? But they're coming to you. Yeah. So this is really interesting to me because the thing that people that are listening to the show have heard me talk about before is, you know, hand tool woodworking and how that's something that can be reasonably blended into a modern shop. And, and one of the things that you hear people that talk about this a lot is exactly that notion you know, that when you are working by hand, the objective should not necessarily be, I mean, everybody can have their own objective, that's fine. But like mm-hmm. one of the traps that you can fall into is, is because woodworking um, uh, for the last, oh, 70 years, say, since World War II, roughly, has been highly focused on uh, machine uh, tool woodworking, power tool woodworking, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, we've We've kind of developed this aesthetic, this default aesthetic of um, that things should look like they were made by machines, that every chair should be identical to every other chair, that every every surface should be glass smooth, that every joint should be completely and totally tight. And not that it, it can't be a goal in hand tool, hand tool working to have precision, but it's a different kind of thing, like that plane marks on a surface um, are texture and not flaws. And right. so what's interesting to me to hear you talk about this is it almost sounds like um, that that's, front and center in blacksmithing um and is a thing that is like explicitly um you know part of the tradition whereas in woodworking it's only been more recently that we've kind of started to come back to that and it's still not at the core right the core of woodworking for most people is still the table saw the joiner the planer which is fine nothing against that but it it does not have kind of as part of the as part of the overall hobby a preservation of the of the the tools and techniques and philosophy and it's interesting too to hear you talk about it It almost sounds like not many people are blacksmithing kind of on their own disconnected from um 
this community. I, I wonder if you could comment on that, because that's definitely the case in woodworking, that a lot of us are picking up the hobby and working on our own, disconnected from any, uh, it's not really centralized what you're talking about, but the sort of a, a community. I mean, there's YouTube and whatnot, but but there's not people out there going, you know, hey, join us. This is the way. And we're all kind of in this together. Is mm-hmm. that is that actually the case in blacksmithing? Or are there more people who are, you know, kind of working on their own in their basement and they're not really connected, if that makes any sense? Well, before I comment on that, uh, just taking a step back on woodworking, uh, I saw a, a, a barn a few weeks back and looking up into the rafters, you could actually see the axe marks <laughs> yep. on these timbers, right? And um, it, w- it was, I, I forget what you call that type of axe with like the, uh, the slightly offset head on it. A hewing axe or something like that. Yeah, I can't remember either. Right, right where, where you're yep. standing on top of this beam and you're you're using it almost like a chisel. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could see these marks, and I found it to just be the most beautiful thing. You know, uh, completely unpolished, completely in the rough, and yet it was like, hmm, somebody made that. Right, right. Somebody, somebody on a hot July day was out here in their overalls chopping away at that thing for hours. And that's just one beam in this huge barn. It was like, respect, sir, respect. Well, yeah, that, but also I think I wonder whether there's an element of, and therefore human beings like myself could also make that, you know, because you could look at, one of the things that I'm doing with the kids is we make things. My younger daughter and I are doing this thing uh, you might have come across on the website we call Home Eng, short for home engineering. It's kind of a play on home ec, right? Sure. Like home economics. But really, we went into the shop the other day and we made a thing called a, a shave pony. What it is doesn't really matter. But in, in practical terms, all she did was screw together some pieces of wood that I had cut. Um, at, but I consider that a massive success because I would like them to arrive at adulthood being people that when they look at an object, they're not like, gosh, I wonder where I can buy that. But, you know, uh, maybe they say that and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with buying things. <laughs> right. I certainly buy things, but then to go, well, I would like one that is slightly different than that. And to have it be in their vocabulary to say, then, you know, that thing was made, I can make things. Therefore I could probably make something that fits what I want or, or costs what I want it to cost or has these other characteristics that maybe aren't available to me as a commercial object. So, so I think what you're talking about, you know, is that sense of connection to another human being. I think it's important that it is a connection to another human being doing a thing that maybe you don't know how to do it right now, but like that you could learn how to do it. I think it's a movie quote. Um, what one man can do, another man can do. Mm. And uh, for some reason, I see Anthony Hopkins saying that line. <laughs> well, it would be awesome if he did. <laughs> right. Um, what, what one man can do, another man can do. Mm. And I try to keep that in the back of my mind, right? Whenever, whenever there's a little bit of um, um, reluctance to try something or, or right, I, I get a little too analytical about something. It's like, hey, it's been done before. It's been done by people all walks of life. Let me give it a try. See what I can do. And they did it for a first time at some point. Yes. Yeah, totally. Yes. Totally. As far as the metalworking community, uh, which was the topic I, I got us off of there for a minute, um, it it really is a community. Uh, and, and that's probably 
probably the the only really good way to break into uh traditional metalworking um so much has been lost over the years uh and i'm not just talking about knowledge i'm talking about physical items like anvils um the scrap metal drives of world war ii had so many farmers and hobbyists turning in their old anvils, their old tools for the war effort, uh, things that weren't necessary anymore down on the farm, um, that nowadays it's getting hard for any novice to find an old anvil, something Hmm. cheap to start out with. Um, Anything you're going to find is generally so beaten up that it's not even worth its weight in metal anymore. Hmm. Um, And so it's really hard for a novice to break in outside of some of these groups that exist around the country. Now, when you say break in, do you mean in a commercial sense or just like somebody that wants to start beating on hot metal in their backyard for entertainment? Uh, it's, it's, It's an obstacle even for those who just want to beat on hot metal in their backyard. Hmm. Um, you know, you can, you can stick some metal in your, your charcoal, you know, barbecue <laughs> and, and, you know, you get it to like a low red heat, right. And, you know, just enough to, 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 to bend it, or you can get a plumber's torch and, you know, put a little spot heat on something. Um, but to really heat up a good chunk of metal to have a solid anvil or anvil like object, um, most people don't have access to that stuff or they don't have the vision to create everything that they would need. Right. Especially Mm -hmm. for something they're not sure that they want to really pursue. Sure. Um, That's one reason that uh, a lot of these blacksmithing organizations do demonstrations around the country. They go to fairs. uh, They go to, to steam power shows um, they go to all these events to try to generate interest and say, Hey, you know, have you ever seen this solid piece of metal do this, you know, and twist it in a, in a knot. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, especially for the kids, a lot of kids just find that fascinating. Um, and, and and we've really been the the beneficiary of that sort of thing. Even even shows like Forged in Fire have had a, a mostly beneficial uh, um, impact on traditional metalworking. Um, you know, we we have so many teenage boys, especially now, showing up wanting to make a knife because they've seen Forged in Fire, and they can't do that. Their their dad cannot just you know go out to the garage and help them do that. <laughs> in most cases, right? In most cases. I'm laughing because we have every my we were talking about home ends, right? One of the things my uh my uh, my younger daughter, the one that I'm doing it with, said was cause because she signed up for the engineering class at school, but it was during it was before the pandemic and she's like, I'm not taking remote shop class. Right? She's, <laughs> like, she's like, That's ridiculous. She says, Besides, I've been to their shop, your shop's better. Ooh. Right? <laughs> And nice. I have a pretty good job, but I have I have all the things anyway. So yes, no, but right, most people are not like that, which is you know, um, yeah. Anyway, but keep on keep. It's just us weirdos here, so keep on talking. No, so uh, the the Guild of Metalsmiths here in uh, in Minnesota, 
um, or, or any of the number of organizations around the country, you know, they're all having uh, monthly meetings, monthly membership meetings. They're all doing demonstrations. Uh, I believe they're, they're almost all nonprofits, you know, so they're, they're doing this all for the right reason, uh, which is the preservation and expansion of this knowledge uh, to, to new generations. Um, and they're, they're an amazing resource that should not be overlooked by even somebody just casually interested in, in the field of, of any sort of metalwork. Is there a, yeah, no, I mean, that's, I totally pretend to go look at this myself. Is there, is there like a national umbrella organization or a single website where somebody can go and, you know, we've actually got listeners from around different parts of the world. It's most of the U.S. So maybe we can sure. speak to the U.S., but how do yeah, I find somebody? There is a national umbrella organization uh, called ABANA, A-B-A-N-A, which I want to say is like the Allied Blacksmithing Associations of North America. Okay. Um, And technically, I believe all of the regional blacksmithing groups are are under their their aegis. we at the Guild of Metalsmiths in Minnesota are are part of their organization. Uh, our website is uh, metalsmith.org. Awesome. And uh, that lists upcoming events. Obviously, we're coming out of COVID, so we don't have too much too much planned yet. But sure. uh, we're we're ramping up again and and uh, getting ready for a fall conference here in September. Very cool. Um. I, I, I want to, it's been super interesting. I, I would like actually to make sure that we loop around maybe to some of the projects that you've worked on because um, you've done some really cool looking stuff and I don't want to, I mean, we'll have you back on. I think it makes sense to have you back on and talk more about, you know, um, more cool stuff. But, but uh, I, I don't know. I don't know where to start because I know you've done a bunch <laughs> of interesting things. Maybe, maybe you can pick something that you think would be worth um, talking or especially interesting. Well, uh, one of the, uh, one of the projects that that blends uh, both uh, metalworking and woodworking was the uh, Viking style shield that I made a few years back. Right. Yeah. And uh, this was this was just a a, a wild bee that uh, that uh, I got in my bonnet. Um, I uh, I decided to dress up as a Viking for for Halloween. <laughs> but it was it was it was it was like a like a post apocalyptic you know biker Viking or something right yeah um, it was just so, this... sorry we need to mention <laughs> Peter you're like six foot three and you are not a small guy you've got a big long beard and long hair like this is not me dressing up as a biker Viking this is a very you have a very the ability to present yourself as you're a really nice guy, but you have the ability to present yourself as very physically imposing if you so choose. I am halfway to being a post apocalyptic biker Viking, even without the costume. <laughs> uh, I admit this, yes, um, and in fact, I we can we can uh, uh, put a photo of the, yeah, of yeah. the shield and, and me in costume up on up on uh, uh, your podcast page. Totally, we actually put these up on. Just mentioned it again, I mentioned it before. We put these up on YouTube and as well. And if you're watching this on YouTube, you'll be looking at a. At a picture of uh, of of Peter in his regalia right now, so I can get him to send me a good one. So I think I think we can convince him to do that. Yes, yes. Cool. But um, so I I had the, the the makings of this costume and was like, I need a shield. Gotta have a shield. Sure. And so I I 
this was this was fairly early in in my my blacksmithing days, and I, I decided, well, I'm just I, you know I don't have time to do research. I really don't care about historical accuracy. I'm sure. just going to make something. Mm-hmm. And I ended up making this 20 pound monstrosity <laughs> that uh, it had like, like metal flashing from, from my roof around the outer edge, uh, you know, with copper nails holding that on. And uh, it was like an inch and a half thick. Couldn't hold it for more than about 30 seconds. <laughs> right. Sure. And let alone carry it around, you know, trick or treating, right? Or or even at a, a Halloween party or, or or anything, costume contest couldn't manage it. It's like, okay, that that looks great, and I learned a lot in the process, but mm, failure is a shield. Version one. Version one. Yep. Um mention it to a buddy that was that is in the Guild of Metalsmiths. And he's like, well, the you know, the first place is all that wood that you you put on there. You know, you glued these pine boards onto this, you know, three quarter inch sheet of plywood. It's like even that three quarter inch plywood was too thick. So let's let's actually do a little research here. Let's take the time. And he wanted a shield too, so it's like let's let's do two or three of these things. And just try different different uh, uh, methods and see what works the best, and if we can get any sort of historical accuracy. So we descended into his wood shop and uh, found ourselves a couple of uh, oh, I want to say the boards were linden hmm. or aspen, um, which uh, uh, our research had had said was uh, was commonly used. <laughs> and wow. and we we realized that the actual thickness of of uh Anglo-Saxon and Viking shields was like half an inch maybe down to a 16th of an inch on the edge. Hmm. Super lightweight, super quick, super thin. And I'm like, man, I don't want a 16th of an inch of wood between me and an angry Viking swinging an axe at me. <laughs> no kidding. I'm like, uh, I don't know about that. I, so I went a little thicker. I, I did half an inch at the center, tapering out to a fourth of an inch. And, uh, you know, we, we tried uh, a different planing of the boards. Um, unfortunately, the first one we did, we glued together before we decided to take it down to half an inch. Mm. Uh, and so I had this 30-inch, you know, square that was like, well we don't have access to a 30 inch planer. Right. And I don't feel like sitting here for the next month with an orbital sander or a belt sander. Uh, so just in my own shop, uh, trying to, to overcome that issue, I just set my circular saw to like a fourth of an inch depth and just made like a hundred cuts mm-hmm. and used a chisel to knock it all down and then used a belt sander and, you know, labor intensive, but, not as bad as it could have been. So it, it's I I, th- I do not mean this as criticism. It, sure. This is a fascinating look at um, the the way that woodworking is done in, in uh, modern times. In that thirty inches wide is no problem at all for a hand plane, <laughs> right? And you and you actually can. Th- I mean, the circular saw trick I've used that too for particularly large boards. Sure. I'm trying to take off more like an inch, but 
to take a quarter inch off of a 30 inch wide board is an operation that is maybe not trivial, but it's not particularly difficult for hand planes. Again, not criticizing you. Right, it, right. It's just fascinating that this is where we are in that even in a hand, a power tool shop, if you had knowledge of how to use hand planes, you'd be like, oh, I have a thing available to me that is going to make this job. I'm going to be able to do what I need to do. Anyway, just interesting. Right, right. And and afterwards, some of those solutions became clear. Mm. Uh, but without a woodworking tradition myself, um, that was, that was. And you got it done. You, I you, got it done. You, but you picked but, a tool. Right, it was done, like, yeah. someone was like, well, why didn't you just use a router? <laughs> you know, I got to say that's, there's this phrase why don't you just, right? <laughs> and almost everything that comes after the phrase, why don't you just, is is guaranteed to piss whoever you're talking to off, right? Because it's like, it's like either it was obvious and it's like, where were you? Or it's, well, you're offering me a solution that doesn't actually have any thought put into it. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I'm sure I say that sometimes, but I have to remember, remind myself that when those words come out of my mouth that I might want to, I might want to, you know, walk it back a step. Anyway, sorry, just no, no. A, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, instead of looking at it as a uh, with regret or I could have done that differently, uh, I tend to chalk it up to the same sort of uh, admiration that I that I showed the uh, that hewn hewn timber in the barn. Mm-hmm. It was like, well, there might have been better ways to do it, but I respect the effort that went into that. Sure, and I actually like that kind of rough look. Mm-hmm. You know, it's there's there's a historic quality to that 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 is missing. But I, I digress. So anyway, we 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 made up these shields, which were much more lightweight. I still was not happy with with just how lightweight it was, and I decided that for added strength, I wanted to put some sort of wrapping around that outer edge. Mm. Um, some of the, the YouTube videos and some of the research I had done was showing that shields that had some sort of wrap were holding together better under impact, that the shield could actually be cracked, be broken, but still hold its shape if it had some sort of compressive band around the outside. Uh, I might be jumping ahead, but was it your intention that this device would be hit by a sharp object at some point? Well, no, but if you're if you're going for a degree of historic accuracy, gotcha. Um, you know, why not make it the best you can make it? Sure, sure, okay, makes sense. Um, and and you never know, right? When you're going to need to pick up a shield for home defense or something, right? Uh, my favorite answer to you never know is sometimes you do. Sometimes, you know, it's not you never know. It's sometimes you actually do know. But anyway, yes. Right. Well, sure. uh, actually, that came in handy uh, because later on I got involved with a film project where these shields actually did get bashed around in the course of of this mock combat we were doing. Uh, so, so maybe it was for the best that I made them a little stronger than they needed to be. I guess you never know. <laughs> right, right. Awesome. Um, By the way, I have seen uh, uh, the the film project you're talking to. I don't think we're going to get a chance to talk about that today, but we will sure. at least include a link to that because it's super cool and will also show some of what the things you're talking about. But uh, yeah, please continue. Um, and, and so then, you know, we had we had this the shield. And uh, the the archaeological record doesn't show that there was ever metal banding around the outside of these shields. Um, 
which is kind of the Hollywood conceit, mm-hmm. right? The, the Hollywood assumption. Um, in fact, uh, in terms of, of ancient literature, I think uh, a shield with a metal band is only mentioned once in the sagas, and it's mentioned as like an oddity. So it was like, okay, metal's out. And I know that like the, the shield that was found at the Sutton Hoo ship burial was covered in pig skin. And not just the edge, but the whole front of it, the whole surface. Hmm. Uh, which any sort of, of front material really binds those boards together, right? Glued mm-hmm. down. Uh, that, that's a lot of strength there. But I was like, what about rawhide? What if I take a band of rawhide, get it wet, stretch it out, lace it in around the outside of the shield? I'm like, that's that's going to set up really stiff, really tough. Sure. And put a lot of compressive force onto that shield. And uh, found another buddy, another guy in the Guild of Metalsmiths who had experience with leather and rawhide, had made his own drum, uh, like Native American-style drum, and uh, he volunteered his services as well. And uh, it took three of us to lace those shields up um, stretching out that rawhide, punching holes in it for the lace, and what resulted was a shield that I think could easily take a sharp edge against that, you know, sharp blade against that outer edge, huh. and hold together completely fine. Uh, the rawhide would not be completely cut through. It's so dense once it's uh, once it's dried. Um, and even if the shield breaks, you know, it's going to hold all the pieces in place. Um, very impressive in my opinion, and, uh, has gotten a lot of compliments from, from, uh, people in the know. I, I love that at some point this transformed from, I think I'd like to have dress up as a Viking for Halloween into, I need an object that could take <laughs> a direct hit from a sword and hold, maybe even a f- several hits from a sword and hold together. Like that is the key feature which i think is great i love (laughs) projects like projects are so important to it's not the only thing certainly but like i there there's something about a project that grabs hold of you and pulls you along and makes you do things like like leatherworking and you know maybe a little bit of and woodworking which you know maybe aren't your primary things the electronic lead screw that people have seen me uh, talk about made mm-hmm. me do a bunch of electronics and a bunch of you know I had to buy a keyway brooch blah 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 right like it really pushes you when you have that kind of a goal uh, it's just super interesting to me to hear how the how the project becomes in a sense an end of itself I think that's fantastic the uh, the shield boss the raised metal uh, uh, guard in the center of the shield which is necessary because the the handle on the back of the shield is is flush onto that shield, right? So you have to cut a hole for your knuckles mm. to go, you know, literally into the shield. Well, you, you got to protect that hand somehow. So you've got you've got to create this raised metal, what's called a boss. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, it's it's an upside down bowl, you know, for lack of a better term. Mm-hmm. You're making a bowl uh, that you then uh, uh, nail or rivet onto the outside of the shield there over the the hole for the handle that was that was an interesting metalworking experience because it was really the 
the first time as an adult that I was playing with sheet metal. Okay. And sheet metal responds quite differently than, say, a mild steel rod that you're turning into a little hook or something, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you're, you're dealing with a thin piece of metal at this point, you know, 2021, uh, and for the last, you know, 20-some, 30-some years, made out of recycled materials uh, that you don't know how it's going to perform under a heat under stress, right? It could split. You don't know what all got recycled into that, into that sheet metal. And to, 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 to create that depression, right. To turn that flat metal into a bowl shape, um, posed a number of questions, a number of challenges. Um, especially since even though I have a shop, it's not necessarily the most complete, a lot of traditional blacksmiths would would point out all the things I'm missing, um, but it was kind of a scavenger hunt to find what objects I had that could contribute to shaping this metal into a bowl. Um, once you start deforming sheet metal, it has a tendency to fold on you, mm. and so here I am trying to press down this bowl shape in the middle and the outer edge that I want flat to nail onto the surface of the shield. It's, it's just getting, getting folds and buckles in it. Sure. And so every little bit of bowl shape I'm putting in, I'm having to go back, heat up that outer edge, hammer it out flat again. Uh, it seemed like I was going as far back as I was going forward every time. Um, and that, that is almost an insurmountable challenge when working with sheet metal. Uh, a lot of people have said, well, where it's folding, just cut it. And so the two pieces of metal will move over each other. Later on, you can trim them and weld it. I was like, well, that's great. But how would a blacksmith in the you know 800s AD have done this? Mm. It's like, if they can do it, I can do it. If they could (laughs) overcome it, I could overcome it. Mm -hmm. And so through trial and error, uh, a lot of individual heating here and there, because you're dealing with like a 12-inch diameter piece of metal, which as you're creating the bowl shape, it does shrink up. And so you're trying to maintain that that flat outer edge while the whole thing is shrinking in on itself. That metal's got to go somewhere. Right. Some of it goes down into the bowl, but other parts want to fold. You've got to work that metal back out and kind of, you know, extend the diameter of the, of the, of the bowl again. Um, it took a lot of work, but, but uh, I ended up with a couple of really neat shaped bosses that um, using like little mini anvils, like I'd, uh, I'd put the trailer hitch from a truck nice, yeah. into my leg vise and I put the bowl over it and just with a little ball peen hammer, you know, start flattening out some of those little indentations, some of those imperfections and just working it back and forth over this smaller diameter trailer hitch. Um, because the, the full anvil was just too big to utilize. Sure. So you come up with some of these little problem solving devices with the garbage you have laying around 
And is it insightful? I don't know. Is it dumb luck? I don't know. But it worked. Yeah, and that that process is just so pleasurable. Like when you finally, I mean, it's it's. You know, I put I've been like, mentioned the electronic lead screw like that. It was all sorts of things in there where I I goofed up and it wasn't working. Like I tried to three D print some uh, some timing pulleys and they just didn't work and it wasn't obvious they didn't work. And when I kind of finally figured out how to overcome that, it was just a really good feeling. And I can imagine that when you were when you finally pulled the thing off of you know out from underneath the hammer and looked at it and said, "Well, dang, that worked. That's awesome. I love that feeling." Yes. Yeah. Definitely. It was a feeling of satisfaction. Um, and, and a pride and, and confirmation that, yeah, I can do this stuff yeah. <laughs> and I don't need, you know, bleeding edge technology. I don't necessarily need somebody, <laughs> you know, instructing me here 24 seven with some trial and error and with some creativity, I can get the job done, even if it isn't the most efficient way, mm-hmm. uh, or the most modern way, um, I can get it done. Yeah. And that's awesome. And I'm proud of it. Yeah, you should be. Well, dude, I feel like that might be an awesome place to start to, uh, to start to wind it down and transition to our, our last question that we always ask guests, but I do like to always make sure that I take time before we do that. Um, cause Hey, it's my show. We can go as long as we want. <laughs> um, even though Clint was telling me that we recorded an episode with, uh, with Clint recently that should be mm. out before this one. And he was talking about how he was driving through Iowa and he was listening to the show and he nearly ran out of gas, which I took as one of the highest compliments <laughs> someone could pay to run out of gas in Iowa because they were too distracted listening. Anyway. That's awesome. Um, yes, it is awesome. And I, I think this conversation has been equally fascinating. But anyway, like I say, before we do wrap down, I, I do always like to leave room for the guest. If there's anything else that would make sense to talk about today before we transition to our final question, that we can certainly uh, do that if you there's like if you want to tell people how they can find you on the web or if there's something we didn't get to anything at all what else, is there anything else left before we before we start to wind down uh, not particularly okay. uh, I mean there there are definitely uh, uh, topics that sure. uh, I'd love to talk about further um, yeah we'll have you back on no question yeah oh no, yeah, that yeah, that, sure. that would be awesome yeah, yeah. Um, because uh, uh, as I've gotten older and uh, you know. I've had some health challenges. My, my hands uh, have been operated on a number of times and my abilities in the shop, unfortunately are already decreasing and, uh, finding a way to stay involved in this hobby. I love and, and not just stay involved, but stay invested um, has been an interesting journey in and of itself. And, and that's probably way too long a conversation to have now. Uh, yes. Although but I, I think it's, it's something that, uh, a lot of people might like to hear oh, eventually. Yeah. No, for sure. I mean, I, 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 I guess without even speaking for anybody else, I totally want to talk about that with you, um, and with other people because so one, you know, the name of the show, get smarter and make stuff. Um, I realized recently that, uh, so the motto of the my alma mater, MIT, is mens et manus, and I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but it's Latin for uh, mind and hands. Mm. And, and if you think about that a little bit, so like one of the things that we talk about a lot is the connection between making and learning and about how often uh, making something is about learning or involves learning or how learning informs make, just all these ways that those two things cross over. And I, and I realized in thinking about it that um, that, that notion of mind and hands is really a part of that as well. It, it is that 
when you make something, your your mind is directing your hands. Like it's, it's never purely physical, right? There's all, there has to be a mental component because you need to be a thinking. Uh, you need to be thinking to in order to direct the work. And so, yes. The, so this may seem far afield from what you're talking about, but I think it's absolutely related in that. I mean, I'm going to be 50 this year. You know, I'm I'm not young anymore. I mean, 50. You can't really. I guess my my mother, uh, my wife's uh, father, who is ninety, would argue that maybe I'm still young. But <laughs> you know, like I'm 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 slowing down. I have more physical limitations. We all have that. Some people have greater challenges. You know, you mentioned yours. We can talk about those next time you're on as well. I think that would be interesting as well. But like it's hap- it happens to everybody, right? We all s- slow down. We all be- we all have changes in our ability to direct our hands. Um, and so, you know, one thinks, okay, well, l- what does that mean in terms of that mind-hand balance? Like, obviously, one thing you can do is work smarter. Another thing you mm-hmm. can do is, you know, focus more on the mental aspects of whatever discipline. So, I don't know. I feel like what you're talking about is something I am f- absolutely want to talk about. I think it is 100% in keeping with the notion of the of the show, you know, m- making and learning. I think those you – know, aging is – we got to talk about that. So we definitely have to have you back on. We are, when we do, we will for sure talk about that uh, aging and physical limitations and how they intersect with all this. Cause I think it's like, there's only one option to getting older, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I'm sorry, but okay. Sorry. So you, you would like to talk about that. I would like to talk about that. Yes, we will do that. Anything awesome. else before we start to um, wrap it up? No, no. Okay, cool. Well, then I will bring us to the last question of the show, which, as our listeners uh, will know from prior episodes, is to ask our guests for a piece of advice. I always love to ask our guests for advice because, first of all, I don't think I've had an episode yet where people can't pick up lots of good advice from the things our uh, guests are saying. But uh, that just goes to prove that all of our guests have a lot to offer in this arena. So I think it's an excellent opportunity to um, to get some targeted bit of advice from people. And that can be whatever, as I told you before the show, Peter, it can be advice you were given, advice you like to give, advice you wish you would have gotten or given, anything, just advice. What advice do you have for me and our audience? Well, there's two things that come to mind. And... Uh, uh, one of them was uh, a recent uh, interview I saw with Bruce Dickinson, mm-hmm. the lead singer of uh, the heavy metal band Iron Maiden, and uh, the the hosts were were just marveling over this this Renaissance man, right? And and you know you know a lot about him, and we don't need to go into detail, but he's he's interested in everything. He does everything, right? I think he flies the tour plane sometimes. Right, he? and he's a former yeah. professional pilot as well. Um, Olympic-level fencer and just multidisciplinary. And uh, the, the title of the interview and uh, most of the subject matter was about feel the fear and do it anyway. Mm-hmm. Okay. Which, uh, you know, you've known me for a long time. And you know how I like to plan things out, and <laughs> um, can be can be reticent to to just dive in. And so I found that that quote, "Feel the fear and do it anyway," to be kind of an acknowledgement, right? Kind of an acknowledgement that yeah, you're you might not be comfortable, but what's the worst that's going to happen to you? You're not jumping off a cliff you're starting a project. 
Yeah. You might not know how it's going to turn out, but just do it anyway. You don't necessarily need to plan everything. You don't have to be afraid. But if you are, acknowledge it, but keep moving forward. I love it. Yeah. That's one of those that's like seemingly simple, seemingly obvious, but totally something that I know I need to remind myself of more often than I do. Love it. Yeah, it's good stuff. And the last little thing here, uh, just this morning, yesterday morning? Wow, time flies. I'm getting old. <laughs> uh, I was watching a, a PBS show called A Craftsman's Journey. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. No, no. Uh, this big biker dude kind of travels the country, um, immersing himself in various crafts. Like one one episode, he might be making a uh, a musket, in, you know, from from the 1700s. Uh, another time, he might be tinkering with clocks. In this one, he was making arrows with uh, an elder of the Cherokee Nation. Cool. Out of traditional you know, native or natural materials. And, uh, the, the, uh, Cherokee elder said that, uh, a student of his once asked, uh, how, how does, how do you make a great bow? And, uh, he thought about it for a minute and he said, make the bow because you love making it. And regardless of how it turns out, it will be a great bow. Love make it. it because you love making it, and regardless of how it turns out, it will be a great bow. I, I like that one a lot. I like it a lot because, um, on the one hand, I feel like I immediately know what that means. And on the other hand, I feel like I need to think about it a bunch, and later it's going to smack me and go, oh, yeah, there's actually another layer to that. I'll, I'll definitely will have to ponder on that one. I, I dig it a lot. Yeah, awesome. I, know, I think it's obviously super important. I mean, that's kind of what we're talking about here, right? It's like the the love of making things and the love of learning things is, is it's a, it's a, it's a strong element of the, of the show and this, this kind of overall project I've embarked on. Super. Awesome. Well, thanks a ton for those. And thanks so much for coming on the show today. I appreciate you oh, taking thanks time. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I know it's a little early on a Sunday, especially, you know, you're in <laughs> central time and it was like, I had to, Peter and I had to go back and forth a bit on schedules because my kids have a swim meet and a dive meet or whatever. And I'm like, Hey, can you do, can you do 8 a.m. on a Sunday and you were gracious enough to say, yeah, that's cool if that works for you. That's the time it works for me. So I really, really appreciate you taking the time. The conversation was every bit as interesting uh, that, as I knew it would be. So I, I really appreciate your uh, coming out and sharing all your interesting knowledge. We will absolutely have you back on to talk some more, but thanks for taking the time today. Always a pleasure, Craig. Likewise. All right, we will wrap it up there. I hope today uh, served as some inspiration for you to go out, uh, get smarter and make stuff. You have been listening to Get Smarter and Make Stuff. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Visit the show online at GetSmarterAndMakeStuff.com. That's all spelled out, all one word. Go there to subscribe to and comment on the show, read the blog, view the gallery, and find a link to the Get Smarter and Make Stuff YouTube channel. Come on by. We're also on Twitter at MakeSmartStuff. If you enjoyed the show and feel like sharing with others you think might like it too, I'd certainly appreciate it. Thanks for listening and see you next time.